you often hear, don't you? I wasn't planning on beginning like this, but as I read through this, uh, just as we, as I was reading it to you, you often hear, don't you? The world, atheists, uh, uh, people who hate Christianity. Christianity is such a dangerous set of beliefs. Christianity is such a bad thing. You know what the problem is with the world, they say? It's those Christians. That's what they say. Bunch of bigots, a bunch of uh, transphobes, homophobes, and all kinds of insults get lobbed at Christians. For which of these? We're so hateful, they say. And not discounting true, we, we rarely live up to the standards that we are called to live. But the problem isn't with Christianity, is it? The problem is not with the values of Christianity. Because look at what, what our Lord Jesus says here. Where is the, all the hate? Where is all that criticism? Love your enemy. I think the world could do uh, with a little bit of that. Going the extra mile, as they say, literally from scripture. Upholding the holiness and the sanctity of marriage. Is that a bad thing? Is that what makes us so bad and so dangerous to the world? You know why they hate us? Because it shines a light on their own lives. The Sermon on the Mount is a clear demonstration that Christianity is not uh, a hateful religion. It is a religion that is founded on love. On loving your enemy. How many other religions do you hear? Does... Does the Muslim, has Muhammad told the Muslim to love your enemy? No. Last week we, we left off, didn't we? Uh, I was hoping to get through the, the, the section on, uh, I told you it's, uh, we have uh, six antitheses, six uh, ideals uh, here uh, that Jesus seeks to counter uh, uh, what the Pharisees, the religious hypocrites of Jesus' day believed, uh, and tell them what truly is the matter at heart with this. Unfortunately, we didn't manage to get through the third one, and today I won't be dealing much with it. I'm just going to skim over it. And I'll tell you, uh, it's about divorce. And I'll tell you why, because uh, in a month or two, when, whenever we get to Matthew 19, uh, we'll have another opportunity to deal with, uh, with uh, divorce. And we'll take both of Matthew 5, 31 and 32 and, and uh, Matthew 19 uh, at the beginning together. And we'll look at the, the issue of marriage and divorce. But just so we don't, completely gloss over it let me just say this in in jesus's day uh, the rabbis the pharisees had become quite lenient 
uh, with the issue of divorce. Divorce had become uh, very much like in other places in the world at that time, had become a frivolous thing. You can do it for any reason. It's very much what's happening in our own day. It's uh, a man can divorce a wife for whatever reason he desires. Whatever else, what comes into his mind. But Jesus, however, he makes it clear that divorce, except for illicit sexual relations, exposes the repudiated woman uh, to a new relationship. And, And this new relationship with another man is proper, in God's eyes, adultery. And I don't care what the, what the law says. And that basically that's what Jesus is saying. He doesn't care what the civil law, whatever the, 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 the laws of the day in, the, in government say. The law of the land might say that so and so and so and so got divorced. They are no longer in, in union. But in the eyes of God, God says they are still in union. Unless for illicit relationships... They are still in union. Even if the letter of the law of the land would allow that, Jesus says, it still doesn't break the covenant that was made. Because the covenant was made before the eyes of God. It is adultery. I I won't go into detail here today, but just to put a seed of uh, of an interesting element here on your mind. Notice that Jesus seems to put the the weight uh, of uh, of the adultery on the man's side, the woman here, for all the, the, the bigotry and the, uh, the, the accusations that the Bible uh, is very un- uh, uh, bigoted towards women, uh, the weight of that sin is actually placed on, me- on the men, both the man that abandoned, divorced the, wo- the wife, and the, the man that uh, marries a divorced wife. It's them that commit adultery. I won't put, go much into detail here. I just find it interesting that this is the case here. But let's move on to the, to the final three. Jesus moves on from, uh, from uh, the Eighth Commandment. It's interesting that this is the Eighth Commandment in Jesus' uh, estimation, both in Leviticus as well, uh, The laws on divorce come with the Eighth Commandment, and Jesus moves to the Ninth Commandment on oaths and on speaking truthfully. And if you don't take anything uh, from, uh, we're going to speak a little bit about what's going on and what Jesus is saying here. If you don't think, take anything else at this from uh, from this section, take this: that the citizens of the kingdom, the character of the citizens of the kingdom of God, the children of God, are to be truthful. Is that fair enough? We are to speak truth. We are not to be deceitful like the world. Jesus called the, the uh, lying, uh, being the people lying, being the children of the father of lies. And if we are citizens of the kingdom, if we are children of God, certainly lying is not uh, something that is permissible to us. In the Old Testament... We read that oaths were to be taken in God's name. The Pharisees, quite a cunning uh, group of people, uh, I might add, they, they changed it. And it, it's not immediately obvious as you read it, but once you see it, you cannot unsee it. They changed wording around. This, this is a paraphrase. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the, uh, to the Lord. The, the, 
the Pharisees are quite cunning, and they 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 twist and they 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 bend and mold the, their sentences in order to fit in with what they want, uh, with the outcome that that they want. It, this sentence basically excuses the dishonesty. Well, if it's swear, uh, f swearing falsely, it's slightly different than performing your your oaths to God and. Uh, it's not if it's if it's not in the Lord's name. It's uh, it's not really a true oath. Uh, they would say, in rabbinic law, uh, the none of these oath formulas, none of these formulas that are here by heaven, by earth, uh, in, by Jerusalem, none of them were actually legally binding, because they they represented nothing, earth. Or, or Jerusalem. If you swore, let me put it like this. Let's take Jerusalem as an example. If, you, if a, a Jew uh, in the first century uh, told you something and he said, I swear by Jerusalem, that, that, that oath, that vow is absolutely meaningless for him. Because what is Jerusalem? Now, if he swore by the, the walls of Jerusalem, he was swearing by something. Or, I swear by the temple. In the, in the rabbinical tradition, to swear by the temple was basically to swear by nothing. But if you swore by the gold in the temple, oh, then you, you attached something of the Lord to it, something that belongs to the Lord, and therefore that, that oath now is valid. And you see how they would play this. If they wanted to be cunning and if they wanted to deceive someone, uh, they would, oh, I swear by the temple. And the person... None the wiser would say, oh, he made, this, he made a, a solemn uh, oath, so he's going to follow through with it. And when, he, when it, it fell, he would say, but you swore. No, I swore by the temple, but the temple doesn't belong to the Lord. Uh, the, the, the temple is, is, not, is not really a, a quantifiable thing. Uh, if I had swore by sw something within the temple, that would be uh, valid, but not in this case. Or swearing by the altar. If they really wanted to make that oath to be valid, they would swear by the sacrifice that is on the altar. That's how they, they got away with it. It's, it's fairly convoluted, I, I, I grant you that. But that's what they were doing in, in uh, Jesus' day. They were twisting and molding, uh, uh, adding technicalities to justify their own mischievousness and dishonesty in deceiving others. And what Jesus then says is, you're none the better. Because if you swear by heaven, that's where God's throne is. Anything on earth, that's where God's footstool is. All of these oaths, all of these formulas, you claim that uh, it's, it's, it's not swearing by God's name. But all belongs to the, to the Lord. Even if you swear by yourself, you belong to the Lord. You cannot add a, a gray hair or a black hair, in your, a white hair or a, a, a black hair in your head. All swearing, all oath-taking, all vows are taken in God's presence and all belongs to him. Because he owns the heaven and the earth. And Jesus here is saying that the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are not to live by this set of pharisaical uh, oath takings. He even goes as far, and we'll deal with this, where he says, do not swear, uh, do not swear at all. Uh, let's, we'll deal with verse 34 in a moment. Uh, 
But what Jesus is saying is that we should be consistently and totally and, uh, and uh, completely honest. We should not say things that are untrue to be true. We should not uh, deny what is truthful. Consistent honesty is the mark of a true disciple. Our yeses are to be yeses. Our noes are to be noes. And yes, we might be wrong at times. This is, this is not about being wrong or right, but it's, like, um, it's about being truthful and not deceitful, not being liars. So let's, let me just deal before we move on. T today is going to be a little bit more of a, a sort of Bible study, but I hope nonetheless there would be application in the, for the way we live it's slightly less sermonic, less preachy, more Bible study, but I think it is important for us and helpful. So let's deal with verse 34. I say to you, do not swear at all. Very often, I'm, I'm not in disagreement with the great uh, Charles Spurgeon, but this is one of the, the, the times that I, that I would be, albeit I'll grant that he, that he is in good company uh, in people that take his, the same view as him. Charles Spurgeon took a very radical view with this verse. He would say, no, no swearing at all, no oath-taking. Not even if you go uh, to the court and you're asked to swear with your hand in the Bible, not even if you're taking office, uh, public office in the, in, the, in the government, you're not to swear at all. In fact, in, in, this, in this instance, uh, Spurgeon was very much... Uh, on the same team as the Quakers were uh, as well. And other commentators, they, they take this approach. But you see, the problem with that is that for Jesus to say this, it would be the one instance in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is seemingly rewriting the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament allows for taking oaths and, vo and vows. If that's, the, if that's what Jesus means here, It is a breakaway from what the Old Testament allowed and even required at times, I, I, we could perhaps say. And in fact, in this, at this point, Jesus goes counter to something that the Old Testament was defending or advocating. In fact, even God himself in the Psalms and in the prophets is often recorded as taking vows, swearing by his own name. And then you have a whole host of holy, uh, most holy saints in the Old Testament. Joseph, or Jacob asking Joseph to take a, a vow, to, to perform an oath. For me, both, both vow and, vows and oaths are, I, I know technically they're distinguishable, but I think in practical terms, they, they end up being the same thing. You have, you have uh, Jacob requiring one of Joseph, and then you have Joseph requiring one of, of his brothers. In the Old Testament, you see this happening. Abraham, a friend of God, also performed an oath. David, or Jonathan asked an oath from, from David. You cannot read the Old Testament without seeing any eminent saint on special, on certain special occasions, taking vows and oaths. 
And then you have the New Testament. I would say that Paul clearly performed vows in Jerusalem. In fact, he performed one. And yes, he was more to appease and, uh, and not so much from a religious standpoint I was, as we saw when we go, were going through the book of Acts. But even as he writes, and I forgot to bring references, but so often he, he seems to, in his writing, be vowing something and, 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 and taking the Lord's name as he says something and, 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 and using the Lord's name as a proof, of where, uh, as a stamp of truthfulness, of added emphasis of truthfulness in what he says. And I think the great uh, the apostles who learned from Jesus, they, they did this as well. But I think the greatest, most persuasive thing is that when Caiaphas, when Jesus is before Caiaphas, and Jesus is silent, and Jesus doesn't say a word, but then Caiaphas to, turns to him, and he puts him under an oath. As Jesus is there on the court of Caiaphas, and Jesus is put under an oath, let me read to you the... How, how that plays out. It's in Matthew 26. Eventually we'll, we'll get there. And the high priest uh, arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men uh, testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ. The Son of God. And at this point, if oath-taking was so uh, disapproved of, I think Jesus would have said something in this circumstance. But Jesus said, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of, of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I would say that the great majority of Reformed uh, um, believers, theologians, have all been in agreement. The, the great vast majority, but not unanimous majority, Spurgeon being one of the, the ones in dissent here, but the great vast majority of Reformed uh, teachers, theologians, pastors, uh, scholars, they have all been in agreement that taking a vows and oaths is appropriate in certain uh, circumstances. For Luther and John Calvin, for instance, they, they took the approach that you're not to take vo vows and oaths in a personal uh, kind of speech. So if I'm talking to you and you're, it's like in, in conversation, one-to-one -one conversation, that's unnecessary. Your words should be enough. You don't need to tag along uh, God's name. You are to be truthful always. But he, they would say, but in public speech, in, in public office, in public arenas, it is important for this to happen. Anyway, good men will disagree in this part, but I, I do believe that vows and oaths are something that we can take in, at least in public life, in community, in congregational setting, not so much in speech and in conversing with one another. There should be no need for such a thing uh, in our in our estimation, because what Jesus is basically saying here, what is the main point, as I said, it's not so much the practice here, it is the heart attitude. We are to be truthful 100% of the time. And then we move to the issue 
from verse 38, of revenge, of the second mile, as they say. Jesus begins this uh, fifth uh, antithesis by quoting a very well-known uh, law throughout history. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's known uh, in, in uh, Latin, by, by its Latin title, Lex Talionis. And it's a, a law of, uh, of uh, direct reciprocity. It is not a, a, a grievous law. It is not a law. It, it is a law that is in the Old Testament. And it, it, it is not there to, to enact violence. When you understand the human heart, you, even in the Old Testament setting, before Jesus comes and expands it to the heart, to the matter at the heart of this law. But even when you understand it just on the surface in its context, you realize that the lex talionis is actually a grace and the mercy of God placing that law upon a nation and upon the, a culture. Because it, stifle, it, 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 it reduces revenge. If you hurt me just a little, naturally, with no laws to refrain, to, to, to counteract my tendency to get back at you, you hurt me a bit, I'm going to hurt you a lot. That's how humankind works. And left to our own devices, if you take an eye from me, I'm going to take your head. That's how we would do it. And God comes in and gives this law to the, to the nation of Israel, saying that it's an eye for an eye. It's direct reciprocity. It's, uh, and it's not direct, re direct retribution. If you were someone who has been seriously grieved by, uh, and hurt by, by someone, you were not to enact this revenge. The lex talionis, the eye for an eye, was actually to prevent revenge from happening. To prevent... Uh, uh, retaliation from happening. You were not to be the one doing it. And in the law, in the Old Testament, not even your family was to be the one doing it. You were to take it to the judge. And the judge would judge according to this. So a burn for a burn. If, if, we, if I turn there, uh, it's a, if any uh, harm allow, follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, that's how it should, was supposed to work. It was not intended to encourage revenge. But yet, that's how the Pharisees saw it. As a, a tool for personal enactment of revenge. And to feel justified by it. So Jesus comes in and he refutes that idea. By saying, no, you're not to resist an evil person. And here perhaps the question in someone's mind. In most, in, in our minds, is you're not to resist an evil person? What about all those verses that tell you to resist? What about all those instances that tell us to, to, uh, to fight back, to fight for the oppressed, to, to fight for the weak, for the widow, for the orphan? What Jesus is saying here, and I think this becomes quite clear from his own personal life, is you're not to defend your honor. You are to leave your honor in the hands of God. To, to the Lord belongs the revenge in those circumstances. You are not to take vengeance. You are not to bear any grudge. You are not to, to, 
to do those things. Leviticus 19, verse 18. This was already there in the Old Testament. Jesus is not saying anything new. He's just expounding it and showcasing the, the, the wrong interpretations of the day. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance. You shall not bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Proverbs uh, chapter 25, verse 21. If he who hates you is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he who is thirsty, give him water to drink. The principle that, that the Bible encourages is one of... Uh, of waiting upon the Lord. In Jesus' day, they, they would use this to exact revenge. But Jesus says, no, the original intention was to stop revenge from taking place. So if someone slaps you, and it's interesting. Let's, let's look just so at, at these different examples that Jesus gives. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, you know what it means. I don't know if you ever noticed this. I, I've heard it said a few times, and I think it is right. For someone to slap you in your right cheek, if I were to slap you, to hurt you, I would slap you with my right hand, my strong hand, right? And if I slap you, I'm going to slap you on your left cheek, cheek. But if I slap you on your right cheek, it's usually a, a backhanded slap, right? It's more of a, a tap. I'm saying I is someone, right? I don't know why I'm putting myself in, the, in this position of, of slapping people. I, apologies. But if someone slaps you with the backhand, that's how they slap you in the right cheek. It's more of an insult. That's the idea behind this. It's, if someone insults you, give them the, the other, the other uh, face. Give them the other side. Give them the other uh, cheek. Jesus wants us to endure insult. The first one and the second one. This is not so much about defense. The Bible is not a pacifist kind of book. The Bible is, is certainly in favor of self-defense. And the sword is not intrinsically evil. But when the sword is lifted up for the for self for uh, when, when we do it for, in a self-righteous and self-honoring and trying to uphold our honor, that's wrong. To vindicate ourselves, that's wrong. Look at Jesus. He was quite violent when time came to, to, for those things to happen, to cleanse the temple. But whenever he was insulted, when insults were hurled at him, as Peter says, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to, uh, to him who judges justly. And Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. And that's what comes from this. If anyone wants to sue you for your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. I won't go into much detail here, but in the Old Testament, there was this uh, law that the tunic, you could not keep, uh, sue someone for, the, for the, the inner garment. You could take uh, a, the inner garment, the tunic, uh, 
but the robe or the cloak you could not take. The law permitted the seizure of the tunic, but not of the robe. And what Jesus says is, if someone attempts to take your tunic, which may be his by his prerogative, because you've, you, you, you owe him money because you're in debt with him. Uh, in fact, the Old Testament said you can take the, the, the tunic, but by the end of the day, you need to, have, uh, to give the tunic back because the person needs to sleep. It's a very just system in the law. But, but what Jesus says is, if someone takes your tunic because it's his prerogative to take, give him not just the tunic, give him the robe as well. Though it's never his prerogative. Give him everything. It's hyperbolic. It's, it's, it's language that is meant to shock and awe the listeners. But it's meant to convey to us that we are not to defend ourselves. And the final two examples add to the ban of no revenge by stating the, the kindness that we should demonstrate to those who insult us. The, 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 the go the extra mile. The second mile, if anyone compels you to go one mile, what would happen in Jesus' day as Israel was under the, the oppression of the Roman Empire? Uh, the, law, the Roman law said that you, uh, a Roman soldier could coerce you, could enlist you to help him carry any load uh, that you could bear, of course, for up to a thousand feet. Uh, you, you would have, you, if some Roman soldier came to you and said, you there, pick up this load bring it. Legally speaking, you would have to go up to a thousand feet. I think that's the, the right number. I didn't check. But what Jesus says, if someone compels you to go the one mile, go with him the second mile. Don't go above and beyond. Give to him who asks of you. The last illustration. The need for a generous heart. And then the question is, where's the limit? Where's the limit on that, Jesus? Does Jesus want us, wants us to go home with no clothing and to give away the money to pay the bills and to feed our families? No, but what Jesus is saying is that our giving should be above and beyond. Our generosity should match the generosity of him who is the king of, of the kingdom to which we belong. Because ultimately, before we move on to the last uh, one, ultimately the values of the king, uh, the disciple are the values of the kingdom. There are the values of the Lord of the kingdom, the king. Does that make sense? I know it's a, quite a string of words, but we are to be Christ-like. Who is it that, that gave the other cheek? Who is it that walked the extra mile? Who is it that his yes was always yes and his no was always no? Who is it that, that, will, that gives freely and generously? It's Jesus, and what Jesus is calling us, and as we'll see in the last section, it's the same thing, is to be like him. To be just like him. That's how our righteousness will surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. And finally, last section, love your enemies. Um, again, let's look at the misinterpretation of the Pharisees. It's a quite glaring one. It's, it's obvious you have heard it, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's in the book of Hezekiah, chapter 3. If, you, if you're wondering where the footnote, where the footnote is in there, I don't know. It's not in the Bible. Quite the contrary. It's not in, nowhere in the Old Testament. The, 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 
the flow of the Old Testament says quite the contrary. But for some reason, the Pharisees felt that this was a quite interesting thing to say and to add. This was an addition. Uh, Exodus 23, verse 4. If you meet your enemy on ox or his donkey going astray. If you're going out in the street and you see your enemy's donkey there going astray, lost. What, you know what you should do? Steal him? No. Uh, kill him? No. You should pick up that ox and donkey and take it to your enemy. That's Old Testament law. You should help him. The problem is that the Talmud, the, an extra set of uh, um, rabbinical teachings, has said nothing about love for one's enemies. But the Old Testament talks quite a bit about it. Paul, when he says about the, uh, how does he mention it, uh, gathering uh, coals of fire uh, in, the, in the head of, uh, of someone, when Paul is quoting, uh, when Paul says that, he's, he's not taking that off his, of his, uh, of his head. He's quoting from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 22. For so, um, let me if read from verse 21. Perhaps it's uh, in context makes more sense. If your enemy is hungry, these, these are not the words of Jesus directly. They are the words of Jesus because the old scripture are, is the word of our Lord. But these are not words said by Jesus. These were, were words written by Solomon. Uh, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you'll heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. What Jesus is doing is refuting this biased hermeneutic that was so prevalent in Jesus' day. It's the question of that man who comes to Jesus. So Jesus, but who is my neighbor exactly? Because that was the, 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 the getaway clause for the Jew. For the Pharisee, for, for, the, for the, the Sadducee, for all of them. That was the getaway clause. Oh, yes, of course you're called to love your neighbor. Oh, but the big question is, who's my neighbor? And Jesus, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he goes and says, everyone is your neighbor. Anyone is your neighbor. But the Jews wanted to restrict as much as possible the neighbor so that then they could restrict as much as possible their love, or to actually, I think, allow their hatred to run rampant towards people without feeling the guilt of doing so. And Jesus refutes this. And he speaks of, instead of imitating Avengers, we should be like, uh, as sons we, of God, we should imitate God, to love only those who love uh, us uh, uh, just puts it on the same level as the Gentiles, as the tax collectors. It's not really righteousness that surpasses the, the righteousness of the Pharisees. Which, the righteousness of the Pharisees, the, the bar is very low, by the way, as we saw. But, uh, but, our, but Jesus says, our standard is higher. The standard of the Christians is higher. And then he says this, you are to be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And then we ask with the Apostle Paul, who is sufficient for these things? I'm not perfect. Are you perfect? 
this, uh, this last statement has often been misinterpreted by uh, people who, who have uh, this idea that a Christian can be morally impeccable, that you can be sinless in this life. The Wesleyans, the, the Methodists, the good Methodists back then, I would still say that they were good Methodists, although they were Armenian, but they were the, the good kind of Methodists back then. They had this doctrine called Christian perfectionism, this idea that you could attain to a, a, a perfection in this life. I think they didn't have uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest Christian living in his day, says that he hasn't attained it yet. He's not already per yet perfect. But yet they, they thought that it was something that we could attain. No, what, what is being said here is that this is our standard, this is our goal, this is our aim. We are to be perfect, just as our Father in heaven is perfect. Children, they should be like their fathers. It is a sad thing when children don't think that their fathers are good examples. And perhaps it is the fault of the fathers as well. But when, you're, when we're talking about the Heavenly Father, He's perfect. We sh you should want to be as your Heavenly Father. When fathers are bad examples, uh, you shouldn't be like them, certainly. And Jesus is saying here, hate your, uh, don't hate your enemies, love your enemies, pray for them, feed them, treat them well. Love them, not just with words, not just with tipping of the hat, kind of uh, platitudes, but with actions. Put it into action, love them, and then you will be, we will be like him. Again, the call of the Christian life, as I said, the, the Sermon on the Mount is this uh, character of the citizens of the kingdom. The character of the Christian, the citizens of the kingdom of God, is a calling to live like Jesus lived, to love like Jesus loved. We have enemies. Again, Jesus doesn't deny that there are, is such a thing as enemies. We actually have those, and I think we all can relate to the idea that we have those that we would love to enact some revenge. The flesh, we, we all know those kind of feelings. But the challenging thing is to take those feelings, those fleshly feelings, those feelings that are not of the Spirit, and with the Spirit's help and empowerment and enabling, take them away. And live like Christ lived. For God to love the world full of strangers and enemies. A people that were estranged for him. He so loved them who were his enemies that he sent his son. Our animosity could not stop his love. And he loved us to the point of giving us new life. He drew us in and adopted us as his children. He poured out his transforming grace on our hearts. And we're no longer enemies now. We're friends. We're neighbors. We're, we're no longer enemies now. We're neighbors. And yes, we cannot be perfect. We fall short. And that's why you need a Savior. And that's why Christ is the perfect Savior. Because in Christ, that which we were lacking... That divine nature, that we are called to be like the Father in heaven. Be perfect like your Father is perfect. That, that divine nature that we lacked, 
was given to us by him. It's interesting that Paul says that we are sons, we are adopted as children in the son. It's in him that that divine nature is given to us, that we are made to be, as Peter says, uh, Apostle Peter says, made to be like God. There is, there is something deeply mysterious in this uh, and, and too much for us to consider because I need to, to hasten to close. But in him, in Christ, we become positionally holy. That's why scripture calls us saints. We're holy. Brother and sister, you're holy already. You're a saint already. Are you perfect? No. But in a sense, positionally, you're already there. Christ has already imputed his righteousness to you. Now the big ask for us, the great duty of the Christian faith, is for us to work ourselves so that our, uh, our position in Christ before God uh, is not as distinct from the way we act, live, and speak. Our work, our duty, is to bring those two closer together. And this one won't move, so it's actually for us to move closer to where we are positionally. That's the message for us. It's not to, to slump down in, in despondency because we cannot arrive at this goal, but it's to press on towards the target. This teaching is for us to love like Christ loved, to, to give like Christ gave, to, uh, to, uh, to pour ourselves like Christ poured himself. I feel condemned when I read something like this. And that is good. I hope you feel condemned reading something like this. I hope you feel under deep conviction that you have not uh, lived up to the, to the high standard of the Sermon on the Mount. But I hope you feel as well that in Christ there is forgiveness. In the spirit, with the, with the spirit of Christ's enablement, there is hope for yet to see improvement and progress in this area. I'll, read, I'll finish by reading a few words from the Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Do not feel that you are not a Christian if you are not fully living this kind of life. But above all, having been comforted by the, the forgiveness of Christ, the, him who, who came to Calvary, that uh, you might be saved, having received this comfort, do not presume upon it, but rather feel that it breaks your heart still more because you are not like Christ and not as you ought to be. If only we all might begin to love like this and every Christian in the world were loving in this way. If we did, revival would soon come and who knows what might happen even in the whole world. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And then you will be like your Father 